We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 through 50 this morning, um, looking particularly at Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. But before we read that, I just wanted to uh, share a, uh, a quote that I read this morning as I was preparing. It's a quote I'd never read before by a man named A.W. Tozer. He was a, um, a preacher and pastor in the 20th century from his book, God Tells the Man Who Cares. He said this, The Bible was written in tears, and to tears it will yield its best treasure. God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. The word frivolous there is the man who is, just takes everything lighthearted and carefree and, and doesn't take anything seriously. Uh, and I just wanted to share this, just, just again, this is again, as I said at the beginning of worship, just a, a sober, somber season. Um, and it, re- it requires of us, I think, it demands of us to come a little bit more seriously, a little more soberly to this passage this morning and to this time of Jesus' life. So I just want to encourage you, um, as best you can, as best you can at home, to put away any distractions, put away any distractions in your heart, in your mind, and just come with your whole heart, your whole mind ready to look at Jesus and look at what he went through for you. So let's read Matthew 26, 20 to 50. I'll read it. You can follow along here, or if you have a Bible, you can follow along as well. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad, and they began to say to him, one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. 
He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Let's pray before we continue. Lord, please prepare our hearts, open our ears, and open our hearts to hear and understand what this means. This is so far beyond anything that we could ever put into words. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would please be at work, ministering to our hearts, helping us to understand this passage, Lord, that Jesus might be lifted up and glorified through this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So after Jesus shares this one final meal with his disciples, he goes out to pray in a garden called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, and he asks three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to come with him, to keep watch with him. And then he leaves them, goes off, and falls on his face before the Father. And I think, you know, we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but I think in this passage, we never see the humanity of Jesus the way we do, right? I mean, in this passage, you see him crying out to God if there's any other way other than having to drink this cup, let it be. He asks his friends to keep watch with him. He doesn't want to be alone during this time. He's clearly in deep agony at whatever is about to come. But in the end, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. I mean, he's, he's really just so human in this passage. But at the same time, I think while you might find it encouraging, it also in some ways is really troubling how badly he seems to be taking this, how much sorrow he seems to be in. If you go back again and read verses 37 to 39, it says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The account of this in Luke's gospel, he actually adds this detail in verses 42 to 44. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He seems to be taking this very hard, no? I mean, he's, he says he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, which is a phrase in, in Greek that really just is used to denote the most extreme anguish someone could feel. He's so overwhelmed with sorrow that he feels like he's going to die. And then he's so overwhelmed that he starts to sweat blood. 
which is a medical condition called hematidrosis, which under severe stress and anxiety, sweat can, I mean, blood can come out of our sweat pores. Why is Jesus experiencing such torture in his spirit? Well, maybe you say, well, he, he's, he knows he's about to die, right? I mean, he's about to go to the cross. He's going to get betrayed. He's going to be crucified, of course. Wouldn't you be in sorrow and suffering as well? But I think it's more than that because all along, Jesus has known this is what's going to come. He has told them repeatedly. See Mark 10, to 34, for example. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. Son of Man is one of his names for himself. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows the plan, the Father's plan. And he knows not only that he's going to die, but he's going to rise again. And so you might think that even though he's about to go through some really hard stuff, if you knew you were going to rise again at the end of it, maybe you wouldn't, you'd be okay. You know, like, I can get through this. I know I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be with the Father again. I'm going to be okay. So why is he in such agony? Why is he overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Why is he sweating blood out of his pores? So I think the answer is found if you look at what he prayed. Listen again to what he prayed. He says, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What does he ask the father to take away from him? He says, If it is possible, take this cup away. And maybe when you read that or heard that, you just assumed that the cup meant like an ordeal, like take, let this cup be past me, this, this difficult ordeal I'm about to go through. But then when you look back through the Bible, you find that the cup has a deeper meaning, a more specific meaning than just a difficult ordeal. Let me just read five or six verses here, five verses. Here we go. But it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Ezekiel 33 to 34. You'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. You will dash it to pieces and tear your breasts. And then lastly, Revelation 14, 9 through 10. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Are you getting the picture? The cup is more than just a metaphor for like a difficult ordeal. The cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human sin, for the punishment of God on evil and wickedness. It makes men stagger, go mad, beat their breasts, it says. So when Jesus 
comes to the Father and he says, if there's any other way for us to accomplish this, this saving of people's souls, this restoring of people to you, if there's any other way to do this other than me having to drink this cup and bear the wrath of the Father on human sin, if there's any other way, let's do that. If there's a plan B, if there's a door number two, please, can we do that? But not my will, but yours be done. Can you understand why he might have been sweating blood? It wasn't just that he was going to be crucified. It was that he was about to drink down at the very bottom the cup of the wrath of Father, the Father on human sin and evil. Now, having said that, I know that for some of you, I mentioned the word wrath, and you're like, Ugh. It, it, you know, it's, it's not a pleasant word. Thinking of the judgment of God, the wrath of God on evil is not a pleasant thought or word. You much prefer just a God of love, God of grace, a God who just loves everyone and is kind to everyone, that there's no such thing as wrath or judgment. I know I'm sure many of you feel that way. I want to encourage you to recognize that wrath on sin, hatred of sin and evil is part of love, that if you love someone, you hate that which is evil that is done to them. You hate that which is evil if you love someone. Hatred is part of love. Wrath on what is evil is part of love of what is good. And like any good judge, God must punish evil. If a judge just let everyone who has committed a crime off and said, it's okay, let them go, he would not be a good judge. He would be an evil judge. And as hard as it is to to stomach this idea of the wrath of God on human evil, it is part of his love. It is part of his holiness and his character. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin and evil and wickedness. He has a holy hatred for it. And of course, there's a dilemma with that, isn't there? Because it's not that evil is out there somewhere. It's that evil, the line between good and evil, runs through every human heart. Every one of our human's heart, every one of our hearts is capable of both good and evil. And so Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Good and evil runs through every human heart. None of us are perfect. And so there's a dilemma because if God is going to destroy evil, he's going to have to destroy us. So what is God going to do? How is God going to deal with this problem? Enter Jesus, coming into this world to bear the cost, to live the perfect life that we could not live, and then to die on the cross in our place, to drink to the bottom the cup that we deserved. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserved but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So do you understand why Jesus is sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? It's not just because he knows he's about to die. It's because he knows that worse than death, he is about to experience the righteous judgment of God on human sin and evil. The cup that makes men stagger and go mad and tear their breasts. 
as he's going to the garden to turn to the father and pray, I believe the father is already starting to pull away from the son. And he, you know, he knew everything for all eternity, but he never knew that. The son never knew the absence of his father. I mean, some of you know the pain of being abandoned and being rejected, right? When a friend abandons you, rejects you, it hurts. When a spouse abandons you, rejects you, it hurts a lot worse. When a parent abandons you or rejects you, it hurts really deeply. This is beyond any of that. This is the eternal father who for all eternity had existed in perfect unity with the son, turning his back on the son as Jesus goes to the cross to take the full weight of the wrath of God on human sin and evil. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And he drinks the cup. In Hebrews 2.9, it says, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. As if that wasn't enough, right? That he was going to have to drink this cup down to the bottom, experience this. As if that wasn't enough, now (laughs) his friends all fall asleep on him. Right? In his hour of greatest need, in his most human moments, he is saying, guys, can you please just stay up with me? Goes to the Father, he falls down, he's sweating blood, the most extreme anguish and sorrow he has ever felt. Father, if there's any other way, let this pass from me. He goes back to his friends, and they're sleeping. And it's as if the Father is saying, this is who you're dying for. Even your closest friends can't even stay awake with you. They're all going to betray you. They're all going to deny you. They're all going to run away. They can't even stay awake for an hour with you. Are you still willing to go through it, to drink the cup for them, for the ones who can't even stay awake with you, who let you down when you need them the most? And again, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, if there's any other way, God. But if not, and not my will, but yours be done. So what does this mean for you? Let me just share four things. Someone, either you or Jesus, must drink the cup. Again, this is not the most pleasant things to think about, right? But if the reality is that there is a holy God that we have all sinned against, that we have all fallen short of, there must be payment. He's a good judge. He doesn't just say, eh, no big deal. Someone must pay the cost. Justice must be meant. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. Again, John three sixteen to 18 says this. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. That's Jesus' words, not mine. Saying it's one of two choices here. It's either going to be on me or it's going to be on you. A little later in that chapter, John 3, 35 to 36, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Again, I understand that for some of you, you hear this and your, your, your mind rebels against this, your spirit rebels against this, you struggle with this idea. I'm just encouraging you this morning to have an open mind and consider this, that these are the words of Jesus saying this. That in the end, someone's going to have to drink that cup. And Jesus has drunk it to the bottom and says, if you'll just trust in me, put your faith in me, believe in me, you'll never have to touch it. As much as you might want to believe that there's another way, that as long as you're a good person and do good things and live a spiritual life, that you'll be fine before God, that's just not the witness at all of Jesus, not the witness at all of the Bible. There's two choices here. Either Jesus is going to drink it or you're going to drink it. Romans three nineteen to 24 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In other words, it's saying no one's going to be right with God just by doing good works and doing good things. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith. In Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the only way to be right with God, he says, is not by trying your best to be a good person and be a spiritual person do all these things. It's by putting your faith in Jesus who lived the perfect life you couldn't live and died, drank the cup down to the bottom for you. Someone's gonna drink the cup. It's your choice this morning. Either reject God and his way of doing it and try to do it on your own. Or just put your faith in Jesus who drank it for you. Second thing is this. The Garden of Gethsemane teaches us that you can trust God's will. You see Jesus pouring out his heart. If there's any other way, God, please, but in the end, not my will, but yours be done. And I, can, I know that I'm sure many of you have been in that place, right, where you're crying out to God, saying, if there's any other way than the way it's going right now, right? I mean, if we could do it this way or that way or that way, I'm up for that. Please, let's make that happen. And sometimes God doesn't allow things to go the way you wish they would. You know, if you were in charge, you'd have it go this way. And God doesn't allow it to go that way. And even Jesus experienced that. And in the end, he said, not my will, but yours be done. I trust that if this is the only way to save them, it's the only way for them to have eternal life. It's for me to die, then that's what we're going to do. Not my will, but yours be done. I trust you. And I want to encourage you, that you, when you find yourself in that place where you're just like, God, if there's any other way than the way it's going, please. And he doesn't seem to let it go that way. It's okay. You can trust 
You can trust him. You can say, not my will, but yours be done in the end. Third thing is this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. In other words, if Jesus drank the cup down to the bottom, then there's no condemnation left for you. He drank it down to the bottom, which means you are perfect in God's sight. Even though you don't live perfectly, God sees you as perfect, that he loves you as his beloved child, that you're a member of his family, an adopted son or daughter, that he sees you as perfect. There's no more condemnation. So whenever you feel like you're in a place where, oh, how could God ever forgive me, put up with me, all these things that I've done, all the ways I've fallen short, all the ways I've sinned, look back to Jesus in the garden. He drank it down to the bottom. There's nothing left for you. There's no more judgment. There's no more condemnation. There's only love. There's only grace. That the eternal son of God took the punishment that you deserve and all there's left for you is love and grace. And so when you start to beat yourself up or think somehow you don't deserve God's love, it's okay. He loves you. Jesus drank it down to the bottom and there's nothing left for you. There's an amazing, I love this couple of verses in Luke's account of the Last Supper where Jesus says to Simon Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He's saying this because he's like, listen, I know you're about to deny me three times. You know, you're going to be telling people that you don't know me. And when that happens, Satan is going to be in your ear and he is going to be telling you, you are a miserable failure. What a sorry excuse. You let down Jesus when he needed you. You might as well just give up, go kill yourself, go off, do something else because you're awful. So Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. He wants to just take you out of the game, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Faith would not fail. When you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, when you fail, when you don't live up to what God wants, what you want for yourself, there's a battle that rages over your soul where Satan just wants to sift you as wheat, take you out of the game, convince you you're a failure, tell you to give up. Jesus says, I took all the judgment, all the condemnation. There's none left for you. You're loved. There's only grace over you. So ignore that liar. Put him in his place. Stomp him under your feet. Because he's just lying in your ear. All that's left is love and grace. Last thing is this. We owe everything to Jesus. I mean, look at, I hope, I hope you took this to heart, <laughs> please. I hope as you were listening to these 30 verses that I read and what I've been sharing, that you have taken this to heart, that you have seen Jesus and what he did for you. To go through that kind of betrayal, denial, 
pain, physical pain, and then not only that, but also the cosmic pain of being forsaken by God the Father, of experiencing the full weight, the wrath of God on human sin. I hope that to some extent you understand and take this to heart that in response, God is not asking you to like, hey, you know, all you got to do is just give one hour a week, come to church, and that's like, you know, it's all we want in return. It's like, you owe everything to him. You owe everything to him. It's not about spend an hour here, give 10% here, do this. Everything is his. Everything that is yours belongs to him. How could we ever repay him for everything that he has done for us? How could we ever pay him back for what he's given for us? Second Corinthians, we just finished that book. Chapter 5, verses 14 to 15 says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We owe everything to him. Is there anything that he could ever ask you to do that could ever even come close to measuring up to what he has already done for you? I know that there are things that some of you are going through where you are just like, this is too much. It's a burden too much. I can't do this, God. But when you look at the garden, you see Jesus sweating blood as he knows he's got to drink this cup going to the cross, experiencing all of that, is there anything that he could ever ask you to do, anything he could ever ask you to give up that could ever come close, could ever compare to what he did for you, to what he gave up for you? There's nothing, nothing that he could ever ask of you that would ever come close. Again, I want to encourage you, when we talk about the love of God for you, this is not Barney the purple dinosaur kind of love. This is not Mr. Rogers' kind of love. This is not just the warm feelings, you know. This is a costly, sacrificial love. This is a love that is willing to undergo the most torturous of pain and suffering to save you, to bring you back to God, to give you eternal life. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. That's why as uncomfortable as the idea of the wrath of God is, what that does is it highlights the depth of his love for you. That Jesus was willing to undergo all of that to save you, to rescue you, to give you eternal life. That's what love is. It's not just warm feelings. It is a costly, sacrificial love. You owe him everything. All your worship, all your devotion, all your allegiance to him. I want to encourage you to give him the honor that he's due and then as his spirit strengthens you, go and do likewise. Follow in his footsteps, loving others, not just with the warm feelings, but with the sacrificial kind of love. There's nothing that he could ever ask you to do or to give up that could ever compare to what he's done or given up for you. We owe him everything. Let's pray. Lord, I know these words have fallen woefully short of what you deserve. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would make up the difference. 
that you would apply to our hearts this truth, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus sweating blood, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, undergoing that kind of sorrow and suffering out of love for us. Lord, capture our hearts with your love. Overwhelm us with your love for us. Free us from fear, free us from guilt, free us from shame, that we might be full of joy, full of love, full of grace, full of gratitude as we reflect on you and your love for us. Help us to respond by giving you all that you are due, the worship, the allegiance, the honor that you're due, not just in our songs and our words, but in our actions and the way we love others, that we would also be strengthened to love others sacrificially the way you've loved us. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.